0: Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership
1: Matters. Welcome to another edition of Leadership Matters, a show that aims to support the leadership development of current and future public and nonprofit leaders. Each episode is designed to inform leaders and inspire solutions. I'm Tom Wall, and I'll serve as the moderator of our discussion today. I work with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and for the Strategic Change Initiative. We work together to help organizations to strengthen and transform themselves to help them to prepare for a more successful future. With me today, as our guest panelist, is my good friend Andre Howard. Andre, why don't you introduce yourself to our listening audience?
2: Sure, Tom. Thanks for having me here. Um, Andre Howard with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities, and I work with our Center on Leadership here in our National Operations Office in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So glad to be part of uh, the show today. Looking forward to it. Me too. Today, Andre and I are
1: joined by our special guest, Paula Pennebaker, the President and CEO of YWCA for Southeast Wisconsin, who most recently received the BizTimes Woman Executive of the Year Award for her efforts to eliminate racism, empower women, promote peace, Justice, Freedom, and Dignity for All. Wow, that's a wonderful, wonderful recognition. Congratulations. Paula, welcome. Would you introduce yourself, please?
3: Sure. Uh, My name is Paula Pennybaker, and I am President and CEO of YWCA Southeast Wisconsin. Pleasure to be with you today.
1: Paula, you were appointed CEO in 2005, after after you'd already been with YWCA of Southeast Wisconsin for a few years in other capacities, including serving as Chief Operating Officer. Could you please describe for us the YWCA organization that you inherited back in 2005?
3: Certainly. Well, when I was appointed the Interim Executive Director in May of 2005, I think the board had realized that the light they saw at the end of the tunnel was not a train. <laughs> um, rather, they, they realized that their hard work and that of my predecessor had resulted in a nearly completed financial turnaround of the organization. We were just coming out of a very difficult um, financial downturn. And while I was faced with more difficult decisions about cuts to fully right-size the organization, um, that work was just for a few more months. By the time I was named the executive director, we were, in a, uh, we were on pretty solid footing.
1: Beautiful. Well, leaders who inherit organizations usually take a little bit of time to formulate their plans for the future. But since you had already been there for some time, did you already know what you wanted to do when you were appointed as CEO in 2005? What did you want to do?
3: Well, I wanted to ensure that we were engaged in work that was directly related to the organization's mission of eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. I knew we could do that as a result of resources that were available to us from the YWCA USA through our regional network at the time.
1: Well, how were your plans for the future of uh, YWCA for Southeast Wisconsin? How were they received when you started talking to people about what you wanted to do for the organization?
3: They were uh, very well received. I think any time an executive speaks of the need for their organization's work to be Mm mission-focused, their board and staff will respond positively. I think funders look for that to ensure their investments will be used responsibly. So I think that, um, uh, you know, people were excited that we were looking at the organization, primarily because we had come out of such a dark period, and sure. a lot of what had led to our decline was uh, significant mission creep. So to focus on uh, making sure that our work was tightly tied and related to our mission was was news that was very well received.
1: Well, tell me how you managed to reestablish the mission focus within your organization?
3: Well, we we had available to us um, resources, as I said, from our regional network, and, and one of those resources was a, compa- a capacity-building initiative that the board um, was very adamant that I participate in, and I was familiar with it. I was... Um, um, so I, I learned all about what that was about. We were able to engage. We, we found a funder that would give us money to engage in a capacity-building process. So we did that, and that helped us look at um, a number of major areas in the association and Score our effectiveness in areas of uh, finance and accounting, human resource management, uh, board structure and governance, things like that. Um, so uh, we were able to look at that to do an objective assessment of our strengths in those areas, uh, see graphically where we needed to improve, and that gave us a road map. Uh, along which we could follow um, in in our work to address the things we needed to do to move the organization forward.
1: What did you do specifically, Paula, to help your staff to become very, very mission-focused and to give them the skills they would need in order to be able to play out the mission that you are articulating for your organization?
3: Well, uh, one of the things that we did... and and this fell primarily in my uh, my ballpark when we were going through our turnaround process. And the board, I have to give uh, a, a great deal of acknowledgement to the board at that time. They hired a, a turnaround consultant that was accountable to the board. So uh, part of my job during that time was to uh, communicate to staff about what we were doing uh, during that turnaround, uh, to make the organization stronger and to keep staff that was still around after many cuts that were made, to keep them engaged to help them see the path we were trying to go, and to let them know that you know when we come out of this and a Part of what I think I contributed to the organization at that time was of you know of a, a vision of our commitment to first of all come through the dark time and come out better at the end to be stronger to be more mm-hmm. mission focused so that we were giving staff that message through the turnaround so um I think they were, those that were still standing at the time I was named as the leader had seen that in me, had heard those messages from me, and were eager to move forward.
1: Were you able to find most of the leadership that you've used over the last 10 years from the staff who were remaining, or did you have to go outside of your organization and recruit some new leadership?
3: No, my team is homegrown. Um my chief program um, program uh, director, uh, one of my senior executives uh, started with the YDBCA as a caseworker and uh, was promoted into her position. Um, one of the people that uh, reports to her that's a part of our our leadership team uh, had the same background. Many of uh, our team are people who have been with us for a very long time. Um, so they they are people who have been able to grow and develop in place. And then, of course, we I brought in some people. Our The person who the board hired as our turnaround consultant agreed to stay on with me as, um, our chief financial officer in a contracted role.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Um, Congratulations. I bet that made things a little absolutely, easier.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, he knew, he knew all about our financial structure intimate, you know, all the intimate details. So it was, I, I felt very blessed that he agreed to stay on with us. Um, and then I, I, I hired um, our racial justice director, who's a member of our our leadership team. Um, I hired an operations director, who, uh, well, she got promoted into that role, but she had been on staff as a program person. So we are very committed to um, the internal development of staff. We have a great. Staff in general, and uh, I have a very talented management team.
1: Are there other positions within the management team that you haven't described yet that you could describe for us that are a part of this team that you depend upon to work the mission of your organization?
3: Sure. Well, we have our our management structure is pretty flat. We have, but our our um, we have a chief. Fund Development Officer, a Chief Program Officer, Chief Financial Officer, um, and myself, the CEO. We are the, the, at the top of the food chain, if you will, for lack mm-hmm. of a better expression. And then we have Director's. That we have a director of our racial justice program. We have um, a director of one of our larger programs. We have a communications and marketing director. We have an operations director. Um, we have a an IT director. Um, I think that's the, whole,
1: that's the whole crew. Thanks. We've got a good good understanding of the team that you're depending upon to implement your mission. Let's take a short break. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here.
0: Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness.
4: How is your work life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
1: I'm Tom Wall and with me is Andre Howard and with us is our special guest Paula Pennebaker, the President and CEO of YWCA for Southeast Wisconsin. Before the break, Paula was describing the organization that she inherited in 2005, the plans that she made for the future of the YWCA for Southeast Wisconsin, and the staff that she has that help her to work the mission. Paula you attempted something that was very important with your organization, to re-energize the programs and services of your organization around its mission to eliminate racism and empower women. But please share with us the story of your journey and tell us how it all started and then where it went from there.
3: Well, the work is still in progress. Um, sure. From a historical perspective, The YDBCA had been engaged in, the YDBC at that time was YDBCA of Greater Milwaukee, had been been engaged in racial justice work in Milwaukee, even at the time I joined the organization. It was not front and center in our programming, however, at that time. Mm -hmm. In 2004, YDBCA USA rolled out a new brand campaign and changed our logo to Eliminating Racism, Empowering Women. YWCA, Mm -hmm. I thought it was important that we breathe new life into our work. So in December of 2005, we held our first An Evening to Promote Racial Justice event to lift up that part of our mission to get people to um, identify that with us and and decided to make 2006 the year in which we'd start the work by defining the organization around the brand and we launched um a series of events just to raise the profile of our work building on the launch uh in the previous December of evening to promote racial justice and since then it's it's been incremental change in 2007 we hired our racial justice director and and launched a public training class called Unlearning Racism Tools for Action that has grown exponentially in the years since then. Uh, we received a grant to do capacity building specifically related to our racial justice work. In 2009, uh, after having had someone come in and do some market research for us, we hired a communications and marketing uh, manager to increase our, our visibility. And I'm, I'm happy to say that with regard to that specific Example, and, and this is a positive plug for millennials, which get a lot of, you know, like they get the can kicked a lot about millennials. But we hired a young woman who at the time was 24 years old. She stayed with us for seven years and did wow. a beautiful job of of building the YWCA Southeast Wisconsin brand in terms of uh looking at our uh collateral materials uh she developed uh a new uh paper uh quarterly newsletter she uh, she developed a monthly uh, e-newsletter, she developed all kinds of beautiful collateral materials, uh, wrote some beautiful pieces for us, just built a great, um, uh, complement of materials to support our work and really lifted our brand. And, and on her exit, not because of any negative feelings about us, but just the need to continue to grow and develop in her professional life after seven years. She, her advice on the way out the door was not to hire another her. That That's right. we had we had grown in our work, and that we needed somebody that was more senior that could take us to a to the next level. So, take, following her advice, we looked at the job and and made it a, ter, a director position, and have just recently extended an offer to a person that will. Uh, not replace her because she mm-hmm. cannot be replaced. But um, we took her advice and hired a, a person, a more senior person in their career. So we're looking forward to what he can do for us good for you. Um, going forward. So I just want to say that we had a very good experience with a millennial and, and realized that her seven years with us is not the norm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now for that generation, but they are out there and they are very thoughtful and, and we're just tickled to death that she was able to get a, a larger job and, um, and moved on to do something that was, uh, both more challenging for her personally, more convenient for her. She had almost an hour commute. So we were just we were tickled to death for her while being heartbroken at her departure. Sure. Um, but I, as I said before, I have an amazing management team that is wholeheartedly supported, uh, supportive and committed to our mission. They're energetic. They're entrepreneurial in their thinking. They're appropriately self-critical. It's just a great group of
1: people. I'm very happy for you. Now, you've been on this journey of yours, working this mission for a decade. What's proven to be the hardest part of your journey over these last 10 years?
3: I think just trying to get people of influence to engage in the self-reflection that's needed to address racism and white privilege mm-hmm. in order to create real change that can positively impact impoverished people's lives. The majority mm-hmm. of the people we serve at YWCA are people who are at or below the poverty line, Um that's certainly within the, the more traditional programming that we offer. That's not true for our racial justice work. But by and large, many of the people we serve um, are at or below the poverty line. There, you know, there's a large number of people in in our society that believe people are poor because they don't work hard enough, mm, and sure. that's that's such an oversimplification of the state of things. Um, it it overlooks the complexity. Of, of what creates poverty, why it's so hard to to break out of it, much harder than it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it it's just, if it were simple, we wouldn't see the levels of, of poor people that we do. And many of the people that we serve at YWCA are people who are working more than one job And still can't scrape out a living. So I think that getting people, talking to people, and helping them understand that it has very little to do with a person's desire. Mm -hmm. Or their, um, you know, and it it has very little to do with them not wanting to work. Very little. So I, I think that's my greatest
1: challenge. Getting folks to initiate these conversations about race and poverty is what is so often reported as the most difficult part. Just figuring out a way to initiate the conversations. What what ways have you found, Paula, that work, that folks might be able to emulate?
3: Well, we offer one, our training program is top notch. Now, obviously I'm biased, but um that that bias does not keep me from being able to see what's good about mm-hmm. the work that we do um it the training is uh designed specifically to help people understand how what how they can take what they learn and put it into action so mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh material shared that's just basic education that helps to debunk some of the myths about race and it's designed to give people plenty of opportunities to reflect in in um, in small groups in uh, listening pairs in ways that are most comfortable for them. Not everybody mm-hmm. is comfortable talking in a large group um, so we try to It's designed to help people participate at a level that's most comfortable for them.
1: Sure. Wonderful.
3: A lot of really good materials, a lot of good resources, a lot of good energy. So we've trained hundreds of people now, and um, many of them stay engaged. We publish a monthly newsletter. Specifically targeted at our racial justice work to help people continue, you know, give people resources, continue to grow and develop and learn. I think a lot of why people don't like to talk about race is because they don't understand it. They don't have. Sure. They don't. They don't have a lot of good information. Mm-hmm. So we continue to develop this this group of of people who have turned into strong allies and continue to give them tools and information to help them build confidence in their ability to address uh, the work in their spheres of influence
1: with the people well, they are for sure, you have to have allies to play out the mission that Absolutely. you've identified. How have you been able to pull together allies, and how have you been able to marshal them as a part of your partner's, if you will, uh, in working your mission?
3: Well, you know, the the training, that one class is a public offering, and um, we reach out to people uh, in terms of uh, talking to folks who ask us about our work, and we encourage them to sign up. Um, We've now developed a large enough following over the years that, a lot of people that sign up for the class are coming as a result of someone having referred them to it, sure, or they've heard about it from family and friends or what have you. Um, I think there are enough people out here in the in the universe that I travel in that have that that really do understand what we're trying to do, and those are people that I go to that I found that I find strength in to keep me charged up to continue to do the work that we do um, We've gotten invited into organizations, uh, church groups um, to to do the work, to have conversations. We um, work with a group uh, from uh, the, that has a program through Cardinal Stritch. Uh, we're on their agenda to work with neighborhood leaders to talk about race. So there's a lot of energy uh, that it has developed around our work and the work of others who have... Who have gone through our work and have started initiatives. So I feel real good about that, and I think that's what's most rewarding about what I do is that when when I see that people are are picking up on on it, that are developing the intestinal fortitude to branch out on their own, to start book discussions, to uh, invite us into uh, different spaces to talk to people and share information about how they can have discussions. I I find that to be very rewarding.
1: Fantastic. Let's take a short break. Thanks so much, Paula. We'll be right back. Please stay with us.
4: Voice America Business Network: The bottom line in business.
0: Leadership Matters is brought to you by Innovisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact Innovisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858 244 8264. That's 858 244 8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at Innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness.
4: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program. Please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to LeadershipMatters at Innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters.
1: We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Paula Pennebaker, the President and CEO of YWCA for Southeast Wisconsin. Andre, I know for a fact that you have some questions and some conversation topics for Paula, so feel free. Take it away.
2: Okay, thanks, Tom. I think I want to start by continuing the conversation that Paula had before the break, and that was around the whole uh, issue of uh, the race uh, social justice work that I know the Y is really trenched in and, 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 and so proud to have been part of some of the offerings that they've actually uh, have delivered here, particularly in Milwaukee County, so I appreciate that, Paul. So let me ask you this. Uh, in terms of our sector overall, you know, the nonprofit, human-serving sector, uh, you know, from what you've engaged, how well are we doing? I mean, it's, it seems like we still have a big push uh, around making sure leaders understand the importance of uh, racial equity and the work that they do and the programs that they deliver, uh, even in the, uh, the leadership team and the boards. So, uh, an overall assessment, anecdotally, if you want, how well have we been doing as a sector in terms of pushing um, the race equity equation? Well, I think certainly
3: in the last few years we've seen more energy around the topic, I think in the last couple of years we we see uh organizations like uh the Greater Milwaukee Foundation that has an equity initiative right now. Data Philanthropies is um, you know doing a lot of work in, on the topic. I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think, um, in terms of the YDBCA, we have we have several nonprofit organizations that have come to us. Um, we've done a significant amount of training in um, some nonprofits in town. I think uh, we've we've trained management teams. In one case, we've trained. Um, all employees, and continue to as they get new people in. So there are there are some organizations that are doing an outstanding job. I think um, I, I think there's still a lot of work needed. I think there's work needed with boards. I facilitate um, a group for the nonprofit center of um, a group of execs of color and uh, it's a very diverse group of, of people of color, and I hear from them challenges of being an exec of color uh, for an organization that serves primarily people of color with a board that is oftentimes predominantly white. Right. And, um, you know, in some cases, uh, board members are not, as fluent as they should be, with regard to what it means to govern an organization that is led by a person of color, uh, serving primarily people of color, I think um, I think we need to do more in that regard. Um, but I I think the sector is is growing in its awareness of the need for the conversations.
2: Absolutely, and you bring up a good point. You know, the organizational executive leadership teams, senior leadership teams, boards certainly need to have faces that represent uh, persons of color. I think it certainly needs to be equitable and inclusive in that realm. The the thing I often and commonly hear from organizations that are trying to recruit the best of uh, persons of color to be on a team is they're just not enough qualified Candidates. I mean, how, how do we respond to, to that that piece? I mean, you know, the, the, the challenge that they offer up is that we love to be able to hire more persons of color to be on our executive leadership team or, or our board, but they're just not there. Um, how do we engage that process? What do we have to think about in terms of that?
3: Well, I think, first of all, I think leaders should think about uh what what they have at home and who are the stars in their midst and how do they develop the people that are on their team already i think um you know i absolutely hate hearing people say we'd love to do something but we can't because people that's just not that's very disingenuous i i, I don't like to hear that i often respond negatively to it if you'd love to do it, you could find a way. So I, I think people need to bridge that gap between their stated love to do something and making it happen. Um, I, I don't think it's as hard as, as people say. And then I think that when, when you hire somebody, if you if you have had enough confidence to make the hire, then you need to show that confidence in how you support that leader. That's Absolutely. something that I hear in in this this group of wonderfully talented execs of color that I have the privilege of facilitating uh, their discussions. Is that oftentimes people feel that they wish their boards would. Um, behave as if they they really do have the confidence they say they have in the leader um, because there's often a disconnect in what is stated and what reality is.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Very spot on, Paula. Now, in terms of thinking about the sector overall, in terms of our impact in improving communities and neighborhoods, uh, and thinking about the type of leader that is needed, um, how far have we come in terms of improving neighborhoods and communities and people uh, over time as this sector has existed? And, again, the challenge that we sometimes do get, of course, is that, you know, uh, we're present in the community, but what's the real impact we're making? What's the, the measurable outcomes that we can we can engage? And I think that's also sometimes um, uh, a challenge. I don't know if we've been able to do it, Well, enough in terms of measuring real impact uh, in community and neighborhood in terms of the improvements. Uh, What kinds of things uh, do you consider or have you collected in terms of outcomes, or what's your take on measuring outcomes and and being impactful as a sector uh, and across America?
3: Well, I don't, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious that the sector isn't as impactful as it should be. Because we we don't see the uh, uh, the result of our work, you know, at the magnitude that I think we all want to see. I think um, funding is always a challenge. I think the expectations of funders of nonprofits is you know it's it's still unrealistic. I think the. The 10-15% overhead myth still plagues us. <laughs> right, right.
2: Um,
3: I think uh, we are very fortunate in that we have good data and, 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 and can show a lot of uh, data about the numbers of people we serve, what happens to those people across programs, um, income. We have lots of data. But I have, I'm always stressed over the ability to continue the funding for the position that right. manages that force. <laughs> so um, we, have a, we have a position called a data compliance manager, and her job is specifically to look at the, the data we collect. We have a, a system that we have in place specific, specifically to track our data. Um, So I I don't think we could have nearly the impact that we should. One of the things we're looking at right now, we're going through a planning process to look at both program sustainability and funding sustainability. And it's a really exciting, I mean, we're doing some really exciting work, and um, hopefully we can take... You know, my intention is that we take the product we come up with as a result of this planning work, and we can use it to show funders that we've taken a real thoughtful uh, approach to how we uh, can move the organization forward if we have the the proper funding and support. And that right. we absolutely. have that we are looking at the efficacy of our programs, not just you know there's there's more to just the numbers of people served but what's the efficacy of the work right, the quality of our service so i think I think we as a sector in general need to do better in in that regard,
2: yeah absolutely yeah, uh, excellent. Uh, my next, piece, what about the the generations that are in the workforce, particularly as we think about leaders? And so we've got, we've got the millennials, we've got the Xers, the Boomers, the traditionalists slash uh, moonlighters, and sometimes we find a mix of generations of leaders within and organization in in terms of trying to connect and and, and get along. I mean, and and I know working with millennials, I love them, Um, and, you know, and I love their passion and their drive. And uh, as an exer, you know, always trying to connect and convene between the um, millennials and the baby boomers. But what's your take in terms of how we harness the, uh, the different generations of leaders within organizations as we think about the uh, the future and of our sector.
3: Well, I think we need to, I think we need to be realistic about um, I think we need to pay attention to what you know the data show with regard to what these different generations are looking for and things like that. I think we need to know these things. I think um, the business journal, for an example, Has a column. I don't can't tell you how often it comes out, but it's called the Millennial Mind, and it it features different subjects about the kinds of things that millennials like and what they, um, you know, what they want to see in the workplace and everything. I think it's good to know that information. I think it's good to factor that information in how you manage people, but I don't think I don't think we should turn ourselves inside out over it. I mean, there. I think there are some things that are immutable facts about working for a nonprofit, and just the the you know the funding constraints are such that we just can't have you know unique programs for every set of employees that we have to keep people happy. It just doesn't work like that. It's just not the nature of the work we do. So we still, when we have open positions and we look to hire people, you know, my team has this information in the back of their minds, but we're looking for people, first of all, that understand what it means to be poor, that, that understands. understands poverty. So we're looking for people who understand the work of the agency. And then we evaluate what we see based on what the likelihood of success is of that
1: person. Excellent. Excellent. Andrea, thank you so much for this segment. We have to take another break, but we'll be right back. Please stay with us.
4: Business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
0: Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVision's Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness.
1: I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Paula Pennebaker, President and CEO of YWCA for Southeast Wisconsin. Before the break, Andre and Paula were talking about the journey that she's been on and the experiences that she's had. Now, Paula, in this final segment of the show, we always like to ask our special guests to offer some advice to other leaders in our field. So, Paula... What have you learned from your journey that you'd like other leaders in our field to consider and remember and do?
3: Well, I think one thing I've learned is that sometimes leaders see risk where it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and they won't act for fear of negative consequences. I think that's particularly true in the nonprofit sector. You know, for an example, we fear that if we do X, you know, we'll lose a funder. Mm -hmm. and don't think about the possibility that doing X, Y, or Z might gain us, too. We would appreciate the change. So, you know, I I just think sometimes we are too risk-averse in the sector. I I didn't grow up in the sector, so I came at it from a different perspective in that regard. I think I've learned to identify people I can trust that will tell me the truth when I ask for their opinion. Uh, You know, I've learned to look at issues as thoroughly as possible as a way to assess potential outcomes and to include my team in decision-making and then accept responsibility for whatever failures I have.
1: Sure. Understood. So So many folks say that we, as leaders, often learn more from our mistakes and from our success. So the next question I'd like to ask is what is one thing that you've learned or a couple of things if you'd like from a mistake that you made that helped you become a better change leader?
3: Well, I think one mistake I made taught me the lesson that sometimes you can do everything right and still not have a good outcome. Um, I think in In looking at a, a, a program expansion we made once, uh, you know we did market research, we did uh, we looked at finding we did our financial due diligence. We did all of the things that the textbooks tell us you should do when you're looking at at, at a new venture. What we didn't do was get um, we we didn't get a good feel. For the community in which we were going to be operating,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and learned that it that it was the perceptions that people held that had nothing to do with everything we did right, which was making sure we were doing our due diligence with regard to finances and market research and all that kind of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So, if I had it to do over. I would have spent time in that particular community just talking to people, you know, sure. just calling up some people, having lunch, and trying to get a, a gut feel for those informal
2: measures. Mm-hmm.
3: And probably would not have made the decision. Um, so, I, you know, that's, that's something I'll do going forward. I won't make that mistake again. I'll look not only at the hard data, but some of the soft stuff
1: also. Sure, excellent. What's one thing that you've found that leaders may be reluctant to do, but that they absolutely should do in spite of their reluctance? You talked about risk aversion, and, of course, this is part of it. But what's one thing that leaders may be reluctant to do but that they absolutely should do in spite of their reluctance.
3: I think ask for feedback about particular things. Like, what what do you think about our racial justice work? hmm What 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 impression do you have of us as an agency? What do you think of me as a leader? Mhm do you see flat spots that I should look at? I think, I think it would be good to ask people for feedback. And I don't mean that in the context of performance feedback. I mean mm-hmm. just to see if you can get at some real uh, reaction to, to you as an individual leader into the work of your your agency. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a scary proposition.
1: Tis, It is. Because
3: you might, you know, you might hear complimentary things, but sometimes I think there are things that that aren't going right for us, and if we could just find the right questions to ask, we might get at what is unstated. Sure. I don't think that's kinda of scary.
1: It is. And trying to avoid the scary is a part of what sometimes keeps us from greatness, don't you think?
3: I think so. I think it's particularly true for people of color and for women. Yes. I think uh and and being an individual for whom both of those things applies. hmm. Um I think it can, I understand why it can be really scary sure. cuz I can't change either one of them.
2: Mhm.
1: You're right.
3: So whatever feedback I get, I have to take, you know, I have to think about it in the context of what I can change and what I can't. And what I can't, I have to let go of.
1: Mhm. Excellent. The basic concept of serenity put all yeah. your effort into changing what you can and let go of the stuff you can't.
3: Exactly. And sometimes that's easier said than
1: done. (laughs) Most days that's easier said than done, wouldn't you say?
3: Exactly. That's why it's a prayer.
1: (laughs) It surely is. It surely is. You know, one last question. Sure. A lot of people would say that your efforts to eliminate racism and empower women and promote peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all are very courageous. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the role of courage in leadership today?
3: Oh, I, th- I think it's very important. I think it is the lack of courage that holds us back from greatness. I think
1: mm-hmm.
3: without being able to, because I think many people stress about things that they see that they know aren't right, but they can't bring themselves to point them out. hmm and I think, I think to me, courage is something that that we develop over time. I think you get to a certain point in your life where um, being courageous is easier. Probably because you know you might not have a lot of time left. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> said I, I think it's very I think it's very important and I think we need more of it. I think we need to see more leaders have more courage about things they know in their heart of hearts mm-hmm. needs to be said and work that needs to be done. And Wonderful. I think if you're going to be in the nonprofit sector not to have courage is detrimental to your own mental health and hurts the work
1: of your agency. Amen. Paula, thank you so much for the time that you spent with us and the thoughts and ideas. Andre Howard, thank you so much to you as well. Please, folks, join us again next time for another episode of Leadership Matters.
0: Thank you again for tuning in.